welcome to Voices Unheard, where we bring you stories from the Arab and Muslim world. In this episode, we take a rare look at everyday life in medieval times in the Islamic world, and we do this through a collection of Arabic stories from the 10th century, stories that were finally translated into English earlier this year. The collection is called Tales of the Marvelous and News of the Strange, and it's not considered high literature from that period. In fact, it was something like pulp fiction, the equivalent of today's trashy novel. And you'll understand why as we delve into it. A word of caution, the material is meant for adult entertainment and may not be appropriate for all listeners. Later in this special hour, you'll hear a chapter reading from the text. But for now, here's a short excerpt. With slender waists and murderous coquetry, they aim at us with their wide eyes, lovely eyes that have no need of coal. They came up robed in beauty, stealing away my wits, and when they tried to move forward apace, it was as though their feet were stuck in mud. There's more where that came from. But for now, we have with us Robert Irwin, the Orientalist scholar who oversaw the translation of Tales of the Marvelous. Irwin is famous for his previous work on another classic that you're probably familiar with, The Arabian Nights, also known as One Thousand and One Nights. It was an epic collection of stories that brought us Aladdin, Sinbad, and genies. Needless to say, Tales of the Marvelous may not be of the same caliber, but it's every bit as fantastic. Without further ado, Irwin joins us on Skype from London. Occasionally, you will hear a city bus or sirens in the background. So just bear with us. So wonderful. Let's start. Um, I just want to thank you for joining us from your wonderful home, your study. I see there are books in the background. and uh, Zillions of books. What are some of the striking themes that you find in Tales of the Marvelous in terms of the cultural norms of the time and the cultural that taboos and perhaps the relationship between men and women and different classes and different creeds and so on? It's, 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 it's an interesting world. It's a more tolerant world than the, the world of Islam as we know it today on the whole. I mean, we're facing vicious wars between Sunni and Shia in Iraq, in Syria and in the Yemen present. In this story collection, though, uh, the, it seems that the writers of these stories had strong Shi'i sympathies and so that characters in the stories will swear by Ali ibn Abu Talib, the prophet's cousin, or by his sons Hassan and Hussein. And Ali appears as a hero in one of the stories. And when somebody comes before the Sunni Muslim Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid, he, he salutes him very sonorously and adds, and you are the one who protects the, 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 the sons of, or the descendants of Ali ibn Abu Talib. So he's saying, well done, you Sunni Caliph, you're looking after us Shis. There's also a great deal of tolerance towards Christians. They, they feature um, more prominently in these stories than they do in the Arabian Nights. And um, the Christians are sort of regarded with fascination. They're, they're people who are guardians of ancient law, L-O-R-E, and they, 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 they know where certain treasures are, are hidden and they, they, they can read the forgotten scripts. They, they're sort of romantic figures. Um, the story of Saul and Shemul has this young man going from monastery to monastery seeking advice um, from monk after monk about where his lost love has vanished to. Or, um, 
And there's an important series of scenes about uh, the initiation of a prince. Well, he's, quite, he's confirmed as a Christian in Jerusalem and then goes off to Baalbek to a, another Christian church where he speaks with a pagan god Baal, Baal which is uh, pretty mixed up, but it, it shows us kind of fascination with Christians as guardians of wonders. While we're on the subject of tolerance, uh, the, the, the people who wrote these stories are pretty tolerant of wine drinking. Uh, they're very easygoing about it. Um, and quite perfectly good Muslims will drink wine. And in one of the Bedouin stories, Mikdad, the great hero, converts to Islam at the hands of Ali ibn Abu Talib, the great hero, Muslim hero, great warrior. Um, and within a page or two, having done so, he, he settled down with a glass of wine. Well, not just tolerance of wine, but um, promiscuous sex and presumably lesbian sex and all yeah. sorts of uh, partying going on. Certainly, yes, a lot, uh, a lot of sex. Um, the, the great story, perhaps the finest of the stories in the collection is the story of Arus al the bride of the bride, that is in Arabic, the story of an, uh, a woman born under a dark star who... Um, feels a compulsion or somehow ends up killing every man or jinn she sleeps with and she sleeps with an awful lot and she goes on to kill other people that she hasn't even bothered to sleep with but uh, yeah uh, there's, there's a lot uh, she, oh I mean, she, she also commits incest if I remember rightly yes she does um, she's extraordinary very powerful character What's your take on the relationships between men and women? I mean, there is this sort of, you know, display of powerful feminine sexuality, which is rather interesting. What, what, what do you take from the sexuality that's expressed in Tales of the Marvelous? It it's varies from story to story. Uh, the generality of stories, um, the women are more powerful than the men. They're, they're stronger characters. They have more oomph about them. They, they take the initiative and they, they sometimes bully the men. As, as in the story of Abu Disa, the, astro the, the man who doesn't want to become an astrologer, but his wife keeps bullying him. Come on, you've got to make a show of it. And you've got to make us some money. Um, but yeah, no, and, and tell her the slave girl who rescues her master and, and reunites with him. They, they, they've got lots of... Oh, and the princess Mahlia, who... Um, is much stronger, much more, not entirely pleasant character, but much stronger than the, the prince who's death, the rather wimpish prince that's in love with her. So that, that in a way, is quite a favourable portrait of women. It's a curious and striking feature of the stories that if in a, one of these medieval stories a man is described as handsome, that means he's virtuous, he, he's noble, um, he's the goody. Whereas the villains, of course, always look ugly. Rather, as in a James Bond novel, the villains tend to look ugly. But if a woman is beautiful, she may just be monstrously deceitful, as are the women in the, the stories of the six unfortunate men, or the, 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 the Arusa Rice, who's incredibly beautiful and everyone wants to sleep with her, never mind the risk. And, and she manages to sleep with many of them, actually. Oh, yes, hundreds. <laughs> Sometimes in, in uh, full view of other people. The character that's telling her story, how he met her on the island, or mm. that he sees her sleeping with, with the genie oh, or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, but um, he, he, he's sitting around on the beach one day, roughly, and he sees the great genie steaming through the sea, dragging a glass case behind him. And so what does he do? He, he climbs up a tree and hides. That's how he watches her uh, having sex with 
So, I'm so uh, spots he's hiding in the tree. The gin doesn't, and the gin goes back to sleep. So he's a peeping tom, then. Yeah, yeah, but he, he he wasn't intending to indulge in voyeurism. He's just terrified of the gin. <laughs> Genies are have been a fascination in Western culture, and certainly they come up as characters in Disney movies and sometimes you know, non-Disney movies like I Dream of Genie, which was a popular show mm. here in the U.S. Um, who are genies? I know they're also mentioned in the Quran and many Muslims believe that they are real creatures. Tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, um, uh, the, sort of, the sort of non-analogy is with fairy tales. In the West, uh, you're you, you friend. Um, in the West, you're at liberty when listening to a fairy tale to believe that fairies exist or don't exist. Um, but in Islam, it's different. The jinn are there in the Quran, and they're also attested in traditions concerning the Prophet Muhammad and his companions. So they're actually part of the religion, and every Muslim should believe in jinn. Um, so they're re they're real. Um, the thing about jinn is that uh, there are good jinn and there are bad jinn. Um, there are also jinn that are Muslims, that are, I dare say there are jinn that are Christians as well. Most of the jinns in stories, of course, tend to be bad ones, but by no means all. And um, such was the reality of the jinn that if you look at medieval law books, they, they stipulate things about, you know, the property rights if you marry a jinn and things like that. Um, yeah, they're, they're sort of very much part of everyday life, really. Well, even today in Saudi Arabia, this is, um, you know, it's, it's taken very seriously. If you if you go to court and you claim your wife or your husband has taken a, a gin lover, this is certainly treated with seriousness. Yeah, I, I spent time in a dervish monastery in Algeria in the 1960s, and the place was... Um, full of gin. Uh, they particularly lurk around the lavatory. Uh, they particularly harassed the sheikh of the order. And they, they sort of lurked around the Zawiya because it was a holy place. It was a place they wanted to lay siege to. But, you know, gin were part of everyday conversation. Did you personally have any interactions with them? Well, ha, you ask. Um, I was interviewed uh, about something or other on the radio a few years back, and I said I couldn't remember uh, seeing a gin, and then the friend who I was with in Algeria said, "Oh, you fool! You've forgotten the the gin that appeared as a cat and behaved so strangely." <laughs> I'd completely forgotten. <laughs> that is funny. Um, yeah, you said there are Muslim gin, Christian gin. There's also Jewish gin. There's um, I know there's some, some, sometimes they're huge, and and sometimes they're tiny. I mean, there's, there's a story in in. Um, the Arabian Nights of a man who's finished a date and finished during and he's thrown the stone away and the stone lands on a baby gin who dies and therefore, you know, this man is in big trouble. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good thing, killing a baby gin. They can be very beautiful, but they can be very ugly. Um, there's one story that's common to both the Arabian Nights, there's one of several stories that's common to both the Arabian Nights and Tales of Malvis, it's the story of Julianar, Julianar the Seaborn or Julianar the Mermaid and in, in one version of the story, her, she's effectively a djinn. Her, her relatives are all very beautiful. Um, and in, in the other version, they're all extremely ugly. It's just the storyteller has decided to go in a different direction. 
Yeah, absolutely. And just to clarify to our listeners, the jinn, as they're mentioned in the Quran, are made of fire or light, I believe, whereas uh, yes. human beings are made of clay or earth. Yeah, yeah and, 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 but, and the jinn shape, can shapeshift. Yeah, they can take what form they like. And one of the themes that's common to the Arabian Nights and to Tales of the Marvelous is a magical battle where the jinn, one, one jinn will turn into a cock and then the sorceress combating the jinn will turn itself into a lion to eat the cock and then the jinn will turn itself into something yet more ferocious to beat off the lion. This is a good time to break from the interview and share this reading with our listeners. It's taken from the story of the 40 girls. We pick up in the middle, after a prince is exiled into the desert by his father, the king. The prince roams around for three days, and just as he's about to run out of food and water, he sees something on the horizon. Here's what happens next. The sun was directly overhead, and he was confused and parched with thirst when what he was aiming for became clearer and turned out to be a lofty and spacious castle towering into the sky. He remembered his father's castle and his city, as well as his own friends and companions, and as he thought of how he had been isolated and separated from them, tears flooded down his cheeks. When he went up to the castle, he found that it had a huge door with plates and ornamental patterns of gold and silver. It was covered with hangings, and in the entrance hall there were various types of singing birds. The door stood open, and the prince went in, convinced that it was death that faced him. In the halls was a series of mats and felt coverings were fixed to the walls. The prince came to an elaborately decorated door leading to a marbled space in which were 40 raised thrones with jugs set beside them, together with all kinds of elegant accessories. Leading out of this were 40 rooms, each containing a bed with splendid coverings of varied colors. The doors of these faced one another, and whoever entered could pass by the whole 40, starting from the beginning. In them were gold and beautifully colored paintings as well as various types of mattresses and coverings suitable for the daughters of great kings. In the middle were flowers and scented herbs together with censers burning aloes wood and ambergris continuously spreading their perfume. Each part of the room had a seat. After the prince had taken a mouthful from each flask, he started to look out of the windows, and there beneath them he saw a large wadi and a broad meadow, at the upper part of which was an orchard with two fruits of every kind, planted with trees producing both fruits of all sorts and blooms. From the tops of them, birdsong conveyed its own secret message. The narrator continued. The prince looked up, and as the wine had gone to his head and he was enjoying himself, he stayed unconcernedly until the end of the day, when all of a sudden he heard the noise of horses' hooves. He looked out of the window and saw forty riders approaching, fully armed and prepared for war. Their leader was wearing a cloak of red brocade with a green turban, riding a horse black as a raven with a white blaze on its forehead. When the riders reached the palace door, they dismounted and put their horses away in their stables beside the palace, tethering them to their mangers. While on seeing this, the prince hid away in a corner of the building. The riders came into the hall, disarmed, and removed their riding gear, 
revealing themselves as women more beautiful than the Houris of paradise. The prince was watching them from where he could not be seen as they went to the dining room. He was astonished by their beauty and their clothes, but he did not know what they were. When they sat down, they were annoyed to notice that a mouthful had been taken from each of their loaves, and they started to look at those of their neighbors. Then they turned to the lady who was sitting in the place of honor and who had been riding on the black horse. Lady, they said, this is something that we have never experienced before, and what genie or man has dared to do it? Patience, the lady replied. Don't be in a hurry, for I shall look into it, and whoever did it is bound to come back. They ate their fill and washed their hands as the prince watched, and then they moved to the drinking room, swaying like branches with their lovely faces, recalling the lines of the poet. With slender waists and murderous coquetry, they aim at us with their wide eyes, lovely eyes that have no need of cold. They came up robed in beauty, stealing away my wits, and when they tried to move forward a pace, it was as though their feet were stuck in mud. The narrator went on. They continued to relax with their wine, reciting poetry and telling stories until the night was past and day had arrived. Then each of them put on armor, equipped herself with a long spear, and fastened on a sharp sword, after which they mounted and left through the castle gate. Their leader was one of the great sorceresses, and thanks to her skill, it was she who produced the food, drink, fruits, and vegetables. She parted from her companions after telling them to go off as usual, while she hid in order to discover who it was who had violated the sanctity of their castle. She went back to a hide of hers at the side of the castle. The young prince stayed where he was until the sun was high, and then he came out and approached the table, stretching out his hand to take a morsel from it. As he was about to put it in his mouth, the sorceress came out and went up to him. At the sight of her, he trembled with fear, letting the morsel drop from his hand. She looked at him, and seeing how handsome and how frightened he was, she went nearer and smiled at him, before sitting beside him and beginning a friendly conversation with him. When he complained of his plight to her, she embraced him and kissed him before asking him whether he was a mortal or from the jinn. I am a mortal, he told her, and the son of a king who has been betrayed by time, which has parted me from my family and my friends. How was that, she asked, and what was it that brought you here? At that, he told her the story of his dealings with his father, explaining what had happened. When she heard this and saw what a handsome and cultured young man he was, love for him took possession of her. She told him, relax and be joyful, for I have fallen in love with you and will conceal your secret from all my cousins and companions. She then ate with him before taking him to the drinking room, where she joined him in drinking pure wine. She then called him closer, and he jumped on her and deflowered her, discovering her to be a virgin. They went on like that until evening, when the girls were due to return, and it was then that the lady told him to go back to the hiding place that he had used the night before. There's more to that story with a second reading at the end of this episode, so stay tuned. Let's go back to Robert Irwin. What sort of Arabic were these stories narrated in? It, it's written in low, vulgar Arabic and often absolutely downright incorrect. Um, the story in the story of the prince and the, the castle of the 40 women, the prince um, finds his castle, which is 
first abandoned, and then 40 women turn up, and they, they live in the castle, and he surreptitiously sleeps with them one by one. So there's 40 sex scenes. Uh, but the bonkers thing about it is the person who's writing the story writing the story down is in such a hurry that he keeps changing the sex within a single sentence. So the pronoun keeps changing for him to her, or she to he, and so on. Um, real carelessness. And there's a lot of incorrect Arabic in this. Well, in this. Is, it, is it possible so, then that it wasn't a, a native Arabic speaker? I hadn't considered that. Um, no, I think it probably is a native Arabic speaker. It's just one who's... Uh, who uses Arabic incorrectly, a lot of vulgarisms. It, it, it's what we call Middle Arabic. It, so it, it doesn't count as literature at all. As far as the medieval Arabs are concerned, literature is primarily poetry. And if it's going to be prose at all, that prose has to be extremely elaborate and ornate and full of antithesis and so on. I think this is literature, but it's, it's pulp literature. It's, it's kind of comic book stuff. What was the literacy rate back then? I mean, who could read this? It's strange, actually. Uh, I think, firstly, that uh, far more people could read in the Middle East than could in medieval Europe. And secondly, that uh, I think literacy rates in the Middle Ages are actually higher than they were until very recently. I mean, higher than they were in the early 20th century. Though that's very hard to prove, of course. Um, And the question is, how did these stories circulate if they weren't the province of a professional oral storyteller and I I think what was going on what was intended with these stories which in fact never took off and just survived in half of a single manuscript what was intended was that this was probably a copy made by a professional scribe who has a a, a scribal shop and he he would work to commissions of various manuscripts but he'd also produce manuscripts of stories of entertainment which he would lend out for a fee um, and people would borrow them and then bring them back, and sometimes they scribble in the margins, I've read this, it's very good, or, or this, this story makes no sense at all. They're the products of a circulating library. And you've uh, seen some of these original copies that have been circulated with commentary on them? I have, yes. Um, yes, there's, there are a number of Arabian Nights manuscripts have turned up quite recently with, with these kind of comments. And so you can see that people reading the stories, obviously literate, uh, but that some, when they sign their names, uh, they, they don't belong to the elite. They're, they're, they're artisans, or they're, they're sort of small-time small shopkeepers, people like that are reading these stories and commenting on them. And in some of these Arabian Nights manuscripts, they use a funny kind of code, sort of stick-like things like Christmas trees, which I'm unable to decipher. I don't know what what they're for. <laughs> Interesting. What are some of the comments? Well, I, I remember having to give a conference paper on the saga of Umar bin Nuqman, which I think is the longest and by no means the best story in the Arabian Nights. And I came across a manuscript of it where somebody had stri- written, this is preposterous, this makes no sense at all. And quite <laughs> right, too. The, 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 this, the, the, the brother in the story, who's sort of a fairly young adult, doesn't realise another brother has been born while he's been out of town, 16 years after the brother was born. It's just ludicrous. I mean, there are things like that in a lot of the stories in the Arabian Nights, not a lot, but no, a few of the stories in the Arabian Nights don't make any sense at all, and they're very badly constructed. Would you say the same about Tales of the Marvelous? Oh, yes. Well, another striking, very striking example, The Prince Who Sleeps With the Forty Girls. The first girl or young woman he sleeps with is the leader of the lot, and she, she's actually a sorceress. Um, and he tells 
his life story to her, and she explains what the setup is in the castle, and he sleeps with her, and he finds her a virgin. And then, surreptitiously, he sleeps with the next 39, both, yes, 39, and, and then he um, sleeps with her. Uh, but it's as if he hadn't slept with her before, because... <laughs> It tells the whole story again, and he finds her a virgin, and it's, no, it's just sheer yeah, carelessness. Well, I guess if they were drinking a lot of wine, maybe that makes sense. There, there was a lot of wine, yes. <laughs> a lot of wine in that story. And on that note, let's pick up where we left off with the story of the 40 girls when the prince was telling his woos to the beautiful head warrior. At that, he told her the story of his dealings with his father, explaining what had happened. When she heard this and saw what a handsome and cultured young man he was, love for him took possession of her. She told him, relax and be joyful, for I have fallen in love with you and will conceal your secret from all my cousins and companions. She then ate with him before taking him to the drinking room where she joined him in drinking pure wine. She then called him closer and he jumped on her and deflowered her, discovering her to be a virgin. They went on like that until evening, when the girls were due to return, and it was then that the lady told him to go back to the hiding place that he had used the night before. When the girls got back, they entered the castle and took off their armor, putting on their female clothes before taking their places at the table. The girl who had been leading them saw the changes that had been made to the food and said to the sorceress, who had hidden away to find out who had been responsible for this the day before, Sister, who has done this? I don't know, replied the lady. And although the others accused her of lying, she concealed the affair and let no one in on her secret. They all ate their fill, washed their hands, and went on to drink wine as usual until dawn. Another girl was ordered to take the place of the first in the castle to see and then to tell who it was who had tampered with the food. The others then mounted and rode off, leaving behind the one who hid nobody knew where. When the prince was certain that they had gone and that no one else was left, he came out from his hiding place and went to the dining room, where he approached the table and stretched out his hand to the food. At that point, out came the girl, who was struck by his handsomeness and the perfection of his shape. When he saw her, he was alarmed and terrified, not knowing what to do. Darling, she said, don't be frightened, but tell me about yourself, what you are and what has brought you here. This calmed him, and his fear diminished thanks to her beauty and the sweetness of her words. He told her what had happened to him with his father, and she sat down beside him, telling him that no harm would come to him. After she had eaten with him, they went to the drinking room, where they drank wine, and when they were in a state of happiness, she invited him to take her and he discovered her to be a virgin, as God had created her. Love for him took hold of her heart and occupied her mind, and so they remained enjoying themselves until evening. When the other girls returned, the prince went back to his hiding place. They disarmed, and after putting on their female clothes, they went to sit at the table, where their leader noticed that the food had been tampered with. She asked the girl who had been left behind how this had come about, to which she replied, Lady, I saw nothing, and nobody ate anything apart from me. The lady kept on selecting a new girl each day until the prince had come to the last of them. Each one of them had conceived, and as the days passed, their pregnancies became visible, 
although no one of them had found out the secret of any of the others. None of this, however, was hidden from their mistress, and on the forty-first day, when she ordered them to ride out as usual, it was she herself who stayed behind, saying that none but she would uncover the affair, and she chose an undiscoverable hiding place. When the prince thought that the palace was empty, he came out as usual and went to sit at the table. The lady saw how handsome he was and trembled with uncontrollable love, and coming out, she threw herself before him. At the sight of her, the prince quaked, and the mouthful he was holding dropped from his hand, while what he saw of her beauty bewildered him. She realized this and sat down beside him, addressing him in friendly tones and telling him that no harm would come to him. I am the leader of these girls, she told him, and I am yours and at your service. While she sat to eat with him, she used her hand to put food in his mouth until he had had enough. They then washed their hands, after which they went to the drinking room, where she drank and poured him wine until he became dizzy. Then she said, My darling, tell me your story. Let me know about you and how it was that you came here. He told her the whole tale from beginning to end, telling her about his father's dream, his anger, and how he had ordered him to be left in the desert. He explained how, after having been on the point of death, he had reached the castle, and what had happened to him with the girls, and what he had done with them. When she understood all this, she repeated, No harm will come to you, my boy, for these are my maids, and they are a gift from me to you. I saw that they were pregnant. You may get children from them, and God may bring you relief and happiness. I myself am lovelier than them, and from this day you will be my friend and lover. So after this, don't approach any of them, for I am here at your disposal. If you do go to any of them, I shall imprison you, torture you, and load you with iron chains. He accepted this, and they went on drinking. The lady kissed him and recited, His visit took me by surprise, and he delighted me. As a visitor who brings me comfort, I would ransom him. In his appearance he is like the sun, or like a moon mounted upon a branch. May God decree that we should never part until we lie enshrouded in the grave. She clasped him to her breast and invited him to take her. He deflowered her and found her to be a virgin whom no husband had known and no man had touched. He was delighted and filled with love for her, while her love for him was twice as great. You've been listening to Voices Unheard. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and visit our website www.voicesunheardpodcast.com You can make a donation to help us produce a future episode. This segment was written, reported, and produced by me. Audio mixing by Tariq Fuda in New York. Voiceover actor is Doug Roberts, a former editor at National Public Radio in Washington, D.C. Tales of the Marvelous and News of the Strange is available in bookstores. For more information on the music we used in this episode, please visit the website.